Just a few minutes ago, you sang the words, nothing stands between us. That wasn't always so. The Old Testament goes into great detail on what separates us from a holy God. And I hope if I do my job this morning, you will understand that just a little bit better. This morning, the focus of our passage will be the cleansing of the temple and this one line, zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal. It's not a word we use very often. Frankly, I mean, most of the time we use it, it tends to be in the negative, right? That somebody's overzealous. You know, we don't really see it that much in the way of positivity. But I'm hoping this morning that we can change that because we're going to look to see how the word zeal is defined for us in Scripture and how we can be zealous in the most positive of ways. We have an awful lot of ground to to cover this morning, so let's pray and we'll get into the text. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come up here and speak, and I pray, Lord, that you, through your Spirit, will use me to help um, everyone who hears my voice understand a little bit more about your holiness and about how destructive the sin in this world and in our own personal lives is so destructive and how zealousness for you and your holiness can change everything. So I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple complex and he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers there, sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with the sheep and oxen, with their sheep and oxen. And he poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's first begin with context. This is the first of what are apparently two cleansings. Now, Without getting into the scholarly debate and the skeptics pointing out that there are two, and John has his in the front and the synoptics have them in right before Passion Week, I will give you some insight into one of the things that was real in, in, in my study, and that is that John's gospel, as we will see, doesn't have a whole lot of regard for chronology. You know, we tend to read things and think as we're reading them that they're unfolding in a certain way on a certain timeline. But John puts this at the Passover and in the beginning of his gospel. I think there are reasons for that, but I don't really, you know, me personally, I don't care whether there were one or two, because what Jesus did and why he did it is what matters. I mean, I will tell you that the skeptics and the scholars both agree 
that John's chronology is somewhat odd. And one of the theories is, is that early on in the manuscript, they got dropped and they got collated, and I mean, all of this kind of stuff is out there. But I don't want you to be stirred by that at all because it's still God's Word. And the Scripture here reveals events that, in, in, in my view, it's a scene that plays itself out in three acts, and I've just read the first part of it. And the word that, the, the, the thing that happened caused John to remember, but he didn't remember until later, right? He does, we'll come to that in a short bit. But he said, the word zeal and zeal for, my, for your house will consume me is a fascinating word. Did you know that the words zeal, zealous, jealous, and envy are just a few of the words that only have one Greek word in Scripture? One. I know I beat the drum about this all the time. You have to be really, really careful how modern English translators translate the original manuscripts. And the word zealous, the Greek here, has all of those different meanings. And over time, based on context, the translators try to refine it because we use other words that developed out of that word. I mean, that makes perfect sense. But the one thing that every single one of those words, envy, jealousy, zealousness, there's one underlying thing that they all have in common, and that is passion. Each one of those words has a great deal of passion. I might also throw out that in the Hebrew, it's the same exact thing. All of those words, one Hebrew word. What Jesus did and the passion that he did it with reminded John of the psalmist that he was quoting. John only quotes the first half of Psalm 69.9, but he might as well, based on context, have included all of the verse. Because the second half of that verse reads, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So as we will see in a few minutes, the zeal, the passionate, the tireless devotion that was aroused by what Jesus saw was an affront to Jesus and an insult to his father. Now, just reading it, that might be a little bit hard for us as you know, contemporary Western to, to kind of grasp. But look with me here. I believe the key to understanding why is found in the first three verses, uh, first three words of verse 14. In the temple. Now, for the Orthodox Jew, there is only one temple. In fact, even in the Greek here, the definite article is included, the temple. Why is that significant? You don't have to show me a show of hands, but how many of you are familiar with the word synagogue? You know what a synagogue is. Well, a synagogue is similar to what you might refer to as a town hall. 
or a gathering place. It's a place of fellowship and study and discussions of life. Frankly, just what we do with the bean, right? There's a lot of us do that. We get together and we go to the bean or we go down to Chick-fil-A and we gather together and we share what's going on in our life, okay? And at that time, there's a thing. We, in modern-day Western Christianity, spend an awful lot of time doing what we just did earlier, and we call that what? Worship, right? We call that worship. That is not what worship amounted to in the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, that wasn't worship. What was worship, what was what was going on in the temple. Now, they would get together, just like we are, they would get together quite often in their villages in a synagogue. And that was where they shared life. But worship was a very, very serious bit of business that, frankly, most of them only did once a year. Now, the temple itself is a fascinating place. I'm pretty sure that the picture that they're going to throw up here is from the Holy Land exhibit in Orlando. In order to fully grasp the significance of the zeal with which Jesus reacted to what he saw, you have to grasp the significance of what he expected to see. The temple complex was comprised of three parts, and you can kind of see it there. There's the front part, that little door, and there's the the porch that's referred to as the porch. Then there's the sanctuary, and then the Holy of Holies. That's the biggest part there in the back. Now, think of the porch as a DMZ. The porch was what separated the Gentiles from the Jews. No Gentile was ever allowed into the sanctuary. And the sanctuary was right there against and up against the Holy of Holies. Now, as you can imagine, that if, if that's what they were about to do, which is make their journey to the temple from no matter where you lived in all of Israel, dozens, a hundred miles, didn't matter. Once a year, you were going to make a journey to worship by making your sacrifice to atone for your sin. Now, they did not have FedEx, UPS, ship sticks for me as a golfer. If you were going to bring something to the temple, you had to bring it. Now, the people were expected to bring their sacrifice. Not surprisingly, some very enterprising folks, probably Levites, decided to set up a convenience store, like a Dollar General, in the sanctuary. Not sure Jesus would have approved if it was set up outside, but they set it up inside, right next to the Holy of Holies. 
Now, before you judge them too harshly, I can remember being in line similar to, I'm thinking, gonna, hopefully they're going to show you it. I can remember being in a line similar to this one time, once. It was in New Jersey, and it took me 40 minutes to pay a toll. I had a cell phone. I called my assistant, and I said, get me an easy pass. Right? Because we will, if you don't want to be inconvenienced, no one wants to be inconvenienced. All humanity is looking for ways continuously to make hard things easier. Examples are everywhere. But let's just say that you had just schlepped an ox all the way from Nazareth to Jerusalem. If you're unfamiliar with the geography, that is 65 miles over some really, really rugged terrain. And you get there. And there's your neighbor, empty-handed, apart from his money bag, fresh as a daisy. He hasn't even cracked a sweat. And he's there, goes up to the table, money changer, exchanges the currency, and buys himself an ox. What would you do? Right? I know what I'd do. Because I wouldn't be thinking about it because the religious people of the day said, this is okay. This is okay. Was it okay? Careful how you answer. What happens then is pretty predictable, right? What Jesus did was then a little bit different, right? His reaction seems a little bit more understandable, does it not? Which is simply this. What Jesus did is what righteous anger looks like. What zealousness for your father's house looks like. When zealousness consumes you, it looks like this, which brings us to us in this picture. In the Old Testament, the temple was a place. It was a building. And I believe John placed his account of the temple cleansing in the beginning and included the Psalm 69 reference concerning zeal for this reason. Jesus knew he was going to die just like those animals. The Father cannot and will not forgive sin without the shedding of blood. This is a matter of holiness. Religious folks of that day had trivialized and commercialized the sacred act of personal sacrifice. There's a humility and a shame in sin. And they had con just converted it into a, a nice, easy, peasy economic transaction, step right up, get your sacrifice, here you go, no fuss, no muss. It outraged Jesus. 
And to be clear, I don't think Jesus cares one bit if we convenience ourselves over the benigner aspects of this life. What he does care about is the holiness of his Father. And we'll see here in the second act of this scene that the religious leaders of that time had lost whatever awe, whatever respect, and whatever humility they may have had at one time for God's holiness. And they had developed a nice, tidy, religious form of of worship that Paul, I think, characterized so beautifully in 2 Timothy 3.5, which we just studied recently, and that is they had the appearance of godliness but denied the power. Act 2, verses 18 through 22, join me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Not surprisingly, the folks demanded to know what authority Jesus had and and what entitled him to interfere with what they were doing. We would put it this way. Who are you to come in here and just disrupt what we're doing? As far back as Moses, the Jewish people expected a sign to authenticate any kind of authority. So recall what I said earlier regarding the temple. They may have lost the gravity of holiness in the temple, but this was still the most important building in all of Judaism, and what went on there, they were very serious about. We know that Jesus was referring to himself. They did not. They completely missed what Jesus was saying, focusing instead on the building. 46 years to build this place. You're going to raise it up in three days? And I think verses 21 and 22, John makes clear what Jesus was doing here. Jesus was speaking about the temple of what? His body. Similar, and this is one of the reasons why I think that John placed this cleansing where he did, because we just had last week, what? The caning, the, wed- the wedding in Cana. Sorry. <clears throat> Jesus was contrasting, he was already contrasting for his disciples how he was different than everything that had been to that point. Before he had arrived, the temple, the holiest place in all of Jerusalem, was a building. With the Messiah arriving signaled, that was changing. He was now the temple. And if we've learned anything in our study of Mark, or the, in John thus far, is that this was something that the disciples didn't fully grasp until when? Years later, after he was raised from the dead. It says in verse 22, So then he was raised, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and then they believed the Scripture in Jesus. 
Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think, Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Once Jesus had fulfilled all the prophecies concerning himself, the temple was no longer necessary. It was no longer the center of the Jewish world. He was. This is made even clearer for us in, by Paul in Ephesians 2. Verses 11 through 13 reads, I'm going to read portions of it. Remember that you at one time were Gentiles. That would be us. Without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, where? In Christ Jesus. How'd you get there? You who are far away have been brought near by what? The blood of the Messiah. See, we read this stuff so often, and we just kind of just, we just write over the top of it. But the blood of the sacrifice was required. Why? Because of sin. And what did sin do? Separated mankind from a holy God. It's his holiness that's the issue here. So just like Jesus, I'm, I'm, pardon me, those sheep and oxen and the doves, they had to sacrifice their life, their blood in place of the, the life of the owner. Now, if you just stroll in, throw down some coin, pick up your dove, pop, boom, not going to mean much to you. I mean, it may, but it is unlikely to mean as much to you as if it was the, the oxen that you had raised. It was yours. The family knew who the animal was. That animal had to die because of the sin in your life. Jesus gave himself for us, his blood for ours, because that is the fundamental requirement to be in the presence of a holy God. We only have that access to a holy God if we are in Christ. Once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have direct access to that part in the building, the Holy of Holies. And that's not really, that's symbolic, right? The whole temple was a foreshadowing of when the Messiah would come and eliminate the need for the temple. He's the temple. The magnitude of this can hardly be overstated. I'm trying my hardest, and I, got, I, I promise you, I even sit standing here, I don't feel like I'm, I'm doing it. I'm not getting there. One of the casualties of modern Western Christianity has been the collective failure to emphasize God's holiness. We're just very casual about it. We just are. Blood. There's been a de-emphasis about blood. Oh, you know, that's, you know, it's nasty. Yeah. Exactly. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin and there is no access to God, period. Why should we expect anyone to care about their sin if we don't emphasize the importance of God's holiness? If we don't draw attention to his holiness any better than the Jewish leaders of the day by just simplifying and making it all easy peasy, then we have let people down. Because you can just stroll casually through this life, not really caring too much about it, and certainly not giving the amount of respect and humility that you should have because of the sin that's in your life and my life made it necessary for Jesus to die horribly. Now, we can discuss how ridiculous sometimes that really feels to us in, in modern-day America. We would, I mean, it, it, it sounds outrageous. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that someone had to die because we are not capable of being holy. We just aren't. We may want to be from time to time, but it's really hard even from time to time. Sin is a big deal. God's holiness is a big deal. The temple and its reason for existing was a big deal. Jesus tried to help them to get it, and like many today, they'd have none of it. And the last few verses of our text this morning make it abundantly clear. Act 3, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name. And while they saw the signs he was doing, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them at that time because they refused to listen. And my hope and prayer this morning is that you won't refuse to listen as well. Because confessing our sin, there's another part of Scripture where it talks about freedom in Christ and what that, free, and what that freedom really means. And when we get to head, heart, and hands here, I want to discuss that a little bit. Okay, God's holiness is important. Sin is bad. What are we going to do about it? I heard this quote several years ago, and I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Literacy in the 21st century is not the ability to read and write. It is the ability to unlearn and relearn. I think Toffler has a point. Most of us, if we're honest, have great difficulty relinquishing an idea once we've latched onto it. Once we think something's a certain way, pretty hard for most of us to go, eh, well, yeah, okay. But that was the challenge that the Jews faced in the temple. Jesus had confronted their religious traditions and, candidly, their failure to understand worship and what sacrifice was supposed to entail. 
and they rejected Jesus. And as we saw in the text, even his disciples didn't get it until when? Later, right? After he had fulfilled all of the prophecies, then, and it was like they were all having their big aha moment. And John especially saw the zeal, the passion, the tireless devotion that Jesus had to the holiness of his Father. Now, more than ever, reason rules the day, does it not? And let's say this fairly and honestly. It takes an awful lot of faith to believe that last week Jesus turned a thousand gallons of water into wine, hundred gallons, sorry. And here he's saying, I am the temple. This requires faith. Which is why I'm recommending the same prescription for heart and hands. Something for you to do. I'm asking you to read Psalm 119. Now, one or two, maybe only one or two of you will do it, but I'm really praying that more of you would consider doing it because Psalm 119 is like a litmus test. For those of you that like trivia kind of facts, Psalm 119 is 176 verses. It's comprised of... Um, it's broken down into 22 sections, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you really like trivia, it's two, ver- it's two chapters from the shortest first, uh, chapter in your Bible and one chapter away from the mi- very dead center middle of your Bible. That would be 118, shortest chapter in the Bible, 117. 176 verses. Now, if you dedicate yourself and just read one passage one Hebrew alphabet section, you'll be done in three weeks. Or you could read 30 verses a day and you'll be done by next Sunday. You will be rewarded for your effort. And this is how. I will confess to you here, having been a believer now, believe it or not, five days ago was 41 years ago I was saved. 41 years ago, I gave my heart to the Lord, October 5th, okay? When I first read Psalm 119, I was like, man, over and over and over. It bored me, I'm being honest. Which was a reasonable reflection of where my faith walk was at the time. I hadn't developed any depth in my faith, I was just reading scripture. I was trying, I was, frankly, most of the time I was reading it, I was reading it to read it. I, you know, at that time, I wanted to say I had done it. It was an achievement. Look at me. I've read through the Bible. I wasn't doing it to change me. Psalm 119 has this fascinating aspect to it where almost Every one of those 176 verses has something to do with God's word. It'll speak to you about his commands or his word. It, you know, you've probably heard some of them here. Uh, here, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
That's verse 11. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's two out of 176. It's over and over and over. And what you will find is as a litmus test, this will get you to see how meaningfully important God's word is to you. It was meaningful. It was so meaningful to the psalmist that they went, he was rattling them off. And as you read it, you will get a sense for how meaningful God's word is to you. The zeal that Jesus felt in that temple that day can be yours. The freedom from sin that John mentioned in, his, in, in chapter 8, we'll get to that eventually here in verse 34, was the freedom that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The freedom that he's speaking to there is the freedom to be in the presence of a holy God without being consumed by his righteous wrath. Let me say that a little bit more positively. The promise of God's grace in Christ provides the freedom to experience God's holiness rather than his wrath. And that's cause for joy, I would suspect. If you're still wondering how, then I'm, I'm begging you, try reading 119. Break it up. Even if, you, even if you've got an app that's helping you read through the Bible, they break up 119 into a couple of days because there's a lot to take in. If you find yourself bored or underwhelmed, that's okay. It really is. Don't be discouraged. I was there. I just admitted it to you. It happens along the way. And there's an ebb and flow to every single one of our spiritual life. But Jesus cleared this temple in the manner that he did because it was an insult to his father's holiness. And that he, understanding that he was going to have to give his blood in place of my blood, it had all been trivialized. And when you get a real grasp of that, when you really, really understand the gravity of your sin, then perhaps your sin will be more important for you to avoid. That no matter what your friends are doing, your neighbors are doing, what they're doing hither, there, and yon, it doesn't really matter. God's relationship with you is with you, not them necessarily in your moment. Your moment, your desire to be in His presence is personal. It comes down to you. Where are you and what is going to keep you from being consumed by His wrath? Simple answer, the blood of Jesus Christ, which he offered freely for you. And that's my prayer, that you in the coming days will spend a little bit of time coming to grip with where you are in your faith walk and how much that matters. And one last word about worship. What we do here is worship is spectacular. I love it. I look forward to it every week. What Mitch and the, and the worship teams put together, it's one of my favorite bits of the whole week. 
Why? Because for a reason that we have come to learn is that when we spend time singing these various songs, they get our focus and attention off of this and get us focusing on God the Father and bringing us into the reality of understanding that Jesus and what he did so long ago is just as relevant to me today, right now, and it will be tomorrow and every day after that. But am I going to keep myself aware of it? And that's my prayer for you. Father, thank you for this passage in a clearer, maybe a bit clearer understanding of how vitally instrumental the temple was to be in the lives of the Jewish people and help us to understand that that same offering of Jesus' blood can be that much of a difference for us if we would allow it. That's the, that's the phenomenal thing about faith, Lord. You don't force it on us. You offer it. And I pray, Lord, that that each of us here today will reflect a little bit more about your holiness in the coming week. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.